and we are live. Uh, welcome to the weekly Industry 4.0 community podcast hosted by 4.0 Solutions. I am your host, Walker D. Reynolds. This is a live episode for Tuesday, October 25th, 2022. Today is my daughter's birthday. It's her 24th birthday. So Nisha Bear, or as the rest of the world knows her as, Tanisha, uh, happy birthday. I love you very, very much. And um, here's to many more. Uh, I appreciate everyone humoring me there so that she can watch this later today at home and know that I gave her a shout out to the universe. Um, we Today, we have a, actually a really interesting podcast for you. So we're uh, I'm going to go over um, basically three quick topics or three topics, one of them quick. So we're going to go over some speaking engagements and stuff that um, I've got coming up uh, through the beginning of next year. Um, then we are going to talk a little bit about um, managers versus leaders, specifically disruptive leadership. And I'm going to talk a little bit about a story from last week that I talked about in the mentorship or the mastermind um, session last Friday, but I'm going to put it out to the YouTubes and talk about the importance of disruptive leadership uh, real quick here at the beginning. We actually added it right at the very end of our pre-production meeting. And then I'm going to be answering questions on the uh, unified namespace whiteboard video that we published, I think last week, right, Josh, that was, that was last week, correct. And, um, and then uh, on the MES video that came out. Um, if you guys have any questions, as a reminder, I can't see the YouTube or LinkedIn chats. Uh, I'll see whatever it is Josh uh, posts here in the stream. Um, all right, quick, just quick announcements. Um, session four of the MES Bootcamp. So for those of you who are in MES Bootcamp, for those of you in the community who are in MES Bootcamp, we're doing session four this Saturday uh, from 8.30 to about one o'clock. Um, topic will be, we're going to go over the final API review. So the Python code that we've, that we wrote over the last two sessions, uh, we'll do a final API review for those of you who are waiting for any scripts that you didn't get completed. I will be sharing them through Git so that you can, um, you'll be able to do a poll. You'll be receiving an email with that link. Um, we're going to start our namespace development. So the unified namespace development that plugs into that backend, but and will also interact with the UI layer. Uh, we'll start on that development. That'll be the vast majority of our development on Saturday. And then we might get to some UI elements, but I think what I'm going to have to do is, is send the UI elements, most of the UI templates and stuff out. We'll probably build one of them together, maybe two, and then I'll share the rest of the elements. So session four this Saturday, for those of you who are not in MES bootcamp, you can, you can still purchase the bootcamp and watch all the, the sessions if you want to. Um, and I, I don't know if that's, if that link is still live, um, at IIoT.university forward slash MES hyphen bootcamp. But, um, the, the, signups for being able to join the live sessions has ended, but you, you still will be able to get it afterwards. We will be doing an advanced bootcamp. So based on all the feedback we've gotten from those of you who are in the bootcamp, um, we have decided we are going to do an advanced bootcamp. I don't know when we'll do that. We're going to do an, an one follow-up session um, that's uh, like a two or three hour session where we're just going to answer people's questions that they have on the MES system that we're building. Um, but then we will also do a, an advanced session that we'll make available next year. I, I don't know if it's going to be in January that we started or whatever, but the, the team has just now started working on that piece because there's been a lot of requests for, um, hey, can you help us with advanced features? So uh, next mentorship meeting is Friday, November 11th um, at nine o'clock central time. Um, next mastermind is Friday, November 18th at uh, eight or 8.30, whatever time we normally meet. Um, and then just last two. Uh, so you guys may have noticed that we we released uh, like a sneak peek video, a sneak peek trailer of a documentary that we have coming out. Um, now I wanted to answer some questions about it. I got a lot, of, a lot of messages about the documentary and I wanted to answer some questions about it. So there was a sneak peek video that we came out. I think it was last week. Um, that, by the way, that video was a surprise to me. So it, a quick little story on that piece. Um, 
obviously you guys by now you guys know that we built a well i built a vision system um using completely off the shelf components um some pre-existing machine learning libraries and then a, a ton of code that i wrote um and we sponsored the shaw classic and we used uh, this vision system was designed for us to be able to go to a live um, strength training competition and um, see if our technology works, right? So our goal was to predict maximum lift by an athlete using this vision system. So basically a function of um, ergonomics, force, um, and velocity. Um, and then um, some uh, some other algorithms that are running it too. But the, the big three thing, the threes were ergonomics, velocity, and force. And um, we wanted to be able to predict, wa watch someone do a deadlift and then predict the maximum amount of weight that they would be able to lift on that day, okay, for one rep, okay? Number two, we wanted to predict injury. We wanted to see if we could predict injury. Um, in our, in testing, I was able to predict maximum one rep, one rep max at about 80% 80, 80 of the time with 80% confidence. Um, I was able to predict what the one rep max would be. Um, and then, so the, the plan was to take the vision system to the Shaw classic and basically set it up on the arena floor during the deadlift and see if we could predict the one rep max for these world-class athletes. And you guys noticed there was like a 60 second trailer and all that kind of jazz. It, we decided that we would document the whole journey. So, uh, there's a Vicente who is one of the members of our digital media team. He's also a documentary filmmaker. So Vicente and his assistant traveled with us to Colorado, to Denver, to Loveland. We all, we drove together like in a caravan and, and, uh, we did a bunch of pre-production shoots like at the gym and everything. And he documented something like 55 hours of footage, um, at the competition interviews with the athletes, us setting up the unit, but also during the deadlift, he was filming me analyzing the data and making the predictions. So, Hey, the model is saying, so-and-so is going to be able to do a lift, you know, based on current velocity force and, and, um, and their current ergonomics, they're going to be able to do a lift of whatever, 1,270 pounds. The world record at the time, I think was 1205. So we had predicted very early on that three athletes that day had enough in the tank to break the world record. Well, the world that, and that was about 30 minutes before the world record happened and the world record did get broken. Uh, we were able to predict it. Um, and then there was a there was a post interview with uh, Alexei Novikov, who was the athlete who broke the world record. And they and the interviewer asked him, you know, what was the max weight that you think you could do? And he said, well, I think I can do this weight. And it was and it was two pounds off what we predicted he could do. So um, the documentary is all about that journey. It's about why did we do this? Why did we build the vision system? What's the whole purpose? You know, why? Why would we even bother? Um, how did we build it? You know, so we used basically industrial technology stuff that we use. I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. The idea came to me two ways. I power lift with my kids and I was working on a solution for a automotive manufacturer and it sort of clicked. I'm like, oh, I could take this. I could basically take this concept and I could apply it to lifting and do and, and do the exact same predictions. And it would fundamentally transform the way athletes um, approach competition, approach tr regular training. The video that was posted last week was um, a video that Vicente did where he interviewed my sons and about like what this means to them that we're doing this. I had no idea he did those interviews. In fact, I was walking out of the gym last Thursday when he sent it to me. He said, hey, I wanted you to see this before it gets published. And I mean, it brought me to tears, obviously. I mean, you know, I'm, I may be a dick, but I am a big softie at heart. And uh, so anyway, that's the reason that was released. We have two other trailers are going to come out. We hope the documentary, I still have to sit for a three hour interview that will piece together in the documentary. Vicente, I think, has, has got the, the initial cut put together. Hopefully we'll have this, you know, no later than December, we'll, we'll premiere it. Uh, we want to make sure we give it to Brian Shaw and his team first. And there's going to be two versions. It's going to be a long version, which I, I think we're thinking it's going to be an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes. And then the short version, which will be like 30 minutes or so. Um, but anyway, we have that coming out. And then 
last week in the master mastermind class uh class a bunch of people asked you know when is your next adversity and success video coming out i got a bunch of emails after that as well um i i, I we have one coming out today i'll be shooting um an updated video we have about eight videos in the backlog but because the book has been delayed um so you guys i have a book coming out called adversity and success and that book was delayed for se several reasons rewrites uh, the original print I didn't like um, when they sent me the original samples. I was not happy with it. I sent it back. Then the publisher wanted rewrites. And then I, my divorce got finalized. And then we had this conversation about I should write a chapter on divorce. So um, hopefully the book is out in December. We're on pace. All rewrites are done. The divorce chapter got accepted. Um, so hopefully printing takes place next month and we'll have copies for everyone who's in mastermind. Um, in December, as if anybody cares about that piece, but it might be helpful to somebody. So that's why we did it. All right, Josh, any questions in the, in the chat that I should uh, answer? What a coincidence, Walker. Today is also my daughter's birthday, 27th. Happy birthday, Maha. Tomas, happy birthday to your daughter, Maha. Is Maha, M-A-J-A. -A. Happy birthday to her. Um, I, let me tell you a quick little story before I go to the speaking engagement. And I, I, I appreciate you guys bearing with me. Um, I want to give my daughter, Tanisha, some kudos. So she's my adopted daughter. She, um, um, we adopted her, I think, when she was 15. Um, she's been in our life since she was born. She was actually in 1998. That's when she's my, my uh, ex-wife's niece. She was like a little baby when we first started dating and, and we, she's been a huge part of our life. You know, I've always been like a father figure in her life. And, um, you know, I have all my, uh, all the kids in my house are, were sons, right? I had, I raised boys, right? So raising boys, I don't have to say you guys, raising boys or raising girls is, is not the same. They are complete, two completely different experiences. But, um, every year, um, Tanisha gives me a, like a card for father's day. And every year I prepare myself. I'm like, oh, you know, this year I'm not going to cry. This year I'm going to go in. I'm going to think of the sappiest thing she could write. And and I and I'm going to read it. And and no matter what, she's not going to get me to cry this year. Right. And every year she knows that I'm going in trying not to cry. And every year she manages to uh, to make me cry with her words. Um you know, Tanisha is like one of the most um, impressive, profound human beings I've ever met in my life. Her determination, her commitment to self-improvement, her nurturing, her, you know, her loving capability is just like literally it's off the charts. Right. And right now she's pregnant with her first her first baby. She's having her first child in February. All my kids knew that they couldn't have kids until they graduated from college. And Tanisha got her degree in May, uh, graduated in May, and she was pregnant with her first baby in July. So she didn't waste any time. Um, but if you don't have somebody in your life who makes you feel, you know, reminds you of all the feels, hashtag all the feels, um, you should find one. Um, and Nisha Bear in my life, she's, you know, every time I question, my methods or my hardness or whatever. Um, Tanisha reminds me that it's all worth it. So thank you, Tanisha. All right. Speaking engagements and then we'll get into the content. Sorry, I took 15 minutes there. I hope y'all bared with me. Um, so I, I have two speaking engagements coming up. Uh, one is open to sort of the world and the other is not. Um, so I'm going to be speaking at Mesa Africa year end summit again. I spoke last year. I'll be speaking again this year. Um, it is, I don't see the date on here, Josh. I just see November, 2022. Um, but I will be speaking. Um, it, we're going to be talking all about MES, uh, mom, smart manufacturing, IOT and industry 4.0. I don't know what the exact date is. It just says November. Um, but I, Oh, November 16 and 17. There's a slide there. I don't know which day I'm going to speak. So I'll either speak November 16th or 17th, and I'll be speaking remotely. Uh, I do know that um, people can sign up to to uh, participate in that summit. Um, and so I, I will be speaking out. I'll have more information about exactly what time I'll be 
I'll speak, I'll be speaking and on which day. And then in January, January 19th, uh, for those of you who are at Miami of Ohio, and there actually are uh, about a dozen subscribers and students from Miami of Ohio, I will be speaking at the systems automation springboard to internships for Miami of Ohio. I'll be doing that again. I did it last year. I'll do it this year. Um, I spoke on MES ERP and the future of manufacturing. Um, and I'll be covering a similar topic this year. Uh, and But I'm going to be talking about how to get the most out of your internship. Um, you know, it's the difference between just carrying a clipboard and collecting data and, um, and, uh, and, and really learning something while you're interning. So, uh, the, and that's January 19th. Um, all right, let me see here. Tim Ryder, at what layer do you aggregate asset specific data for the purposes of OEE? Where is the preferred layer for mapping the asset data to a standard data model? That's a good question, man. Uh, I will answer that one. Um, all right, yeah, I'll answer that one when I get down to unified namespace. Those are good, good questions. Thank you to everybody for wishing happy birthday to Maha or Maja, Maja or Maha and uh, Tanisha. Uh, let's talk about, I want to talk about managers versus leaders real quick, take 10 minutes and then we'll do the UNS stuff. Um, so for those of you who are not in mastermind, I did tell this story in the mastermind session last week. So I'm going to quickly talk about this and then kind of drive home a couple of points. So last week I was hired. Um, well, I was hired, I don't know when, but last week I had to go on site, uh, a client, a very large, um, international conglomerate, a multinational industrial company that does, I think they, you know, they have 19 business units, you know, 160,000 employees, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world. Uh, I was hired to, um, to do a peer review of a large IT company who was pitching an industry 4.0 solution and to do a peer review of a lot of the corporate manufacturing execution team, the one who was tasked with the digital trans, the digital MES system for um, this, this large company and they're, and they're based in Europe. That team is based in Europe. Um, the large IT company is based here. Um, they, uh, the cloud infrastructure is all Azure. Um, and I, I was hired to basically come in and speak on behalf of the location that they were doing this summit at. Um, what, what, the archi current architecture is there, what was the digital strategy that they're actually using, what their minimum technical requirements are, and to critique what was being suggested by these the the um, IT company and what was being um, recommended by the, the corporate company or the corporate MES team. I'm uh, trying to be careful <laughs> with everything I say, so bear with me. Um, it didn't go well. Um, obviously it didn't go well. Um, the, the large it company basically pitched, a, a, a standard, um, they were basically preying on the, or the companies, the organization's ignorance, and they were pitching a, a very standard digital thread, um, solution. Um, and I tweeted about this, you know, Hey, large it company says here, here's your solution on the slide here. And my response was, Hey, that's digital thread. And they said, yup. And I said, well, that's not going to work for these guys. It doesn't work for anyone. Show me, um, do you have an example of a, a successful implementation where digital thread is the foundation of the digital infrastructure? Um, and it was just crickets. You know, I mean, they, they're not used to somebody even asking that question. Um, I, I wrote about that and in, in, I tweeted that the, 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 the engagement didn't go that well. It ended up well in the end, but the the experience during the week didn't go well. And I want to talk about the difference between leadership and being a manager, like the mindset of being a leader versus being a manager. Now, this summit involved, say, 30 to 40 people, half of them for, from across this organization. The other half were consultants who were trying to sell shit. Um. There were many, I mean, the, the, the corporate MES guy and I went right at it. I mean, there were three architects there, me, one from the IT company, one from the corporate headquarters. And you, if you, if you want to see fireworks, put a couple of architects who have differing philosophical positions in the same room and watch them kill each other. Um, and that, that's basically what happened. 
um, you know, you had, you had me and the, and the corporate guy going right at it. I mean, he literally said like, I don't give a shit what your opinion is. Like he, he literally, you know, he's standing over me going, I don't care what your opinion is. Um, we're going to do it my way. And I said, well, I can't allow you to do that because there are things that you have said about digital transformation that are just not true. You have stated things here that are not true. And I'm not going to stand here and, and let you say something that isn't true so that this, my client gets stuck with the garbage you give them. Okay. So that's how the initial conflict started. I, I, the reason that I, I push in those situations and the reason you need to push in these situations, especially when you're having the architectural discussions in the beginning is because all those decisions that are made during those fact finding sessions, information gathering, you know, the, if you look at the large IT companies, how they always see, uh, they call it information gathering and they need three to four weeks or whatever. That three to four weeks is not them gathering information. They, they already know what they want to do, okay? That three to four weeks is figuring out what they can get away with. And, and that's not me being cynical. That's my observation. It is what is it we can actually sell these people, um, whether we know it's going to work or not. That's their, their mentality, okay? This corporate guy, he, his um, opinions... We're not, we're not based in experience on the manufacturing floor. So um, I'm just going to kind of lay out what happened during the week and then what the result was. So in the first day, we had the fireworks. Uh, we were in a conference room, like at a hotel. You know, they did it offsite. Um, and the three, me and the two architects, and then, uh, you know, all of their supporting teams. So my supporting team, their supporting teams are all around us at this table while we're going at it on architecture. My approach to picking apart a flawed architecture is so is using the Socratic method. So remember, you know, never ask a question you don't already know the answer to, and then ask questions and and use the response to questions to reveal the truth. Instead of making declarative statements, right? That this this is a truth. What you do is you reveal what is not truth by asking questions, right? So. There were things like, uh, and I'll give you an example um, with the large IT company. They put a digital thread diagram up on the screen, and they said, "This is, this is how we believe your what your architecture should look like. Your the solutions for this um, state these stakeholders will be in this little box right here, and the solution for these stakeholders will be in this box right here, and the solution for the plant will be in this box right here." Right? We've all seen these diagrams, the the digital thread diagrams. And rather than me saying, hey, that's not going to work, I didn't start there. Uh, what I did was I, I never even sat down. When they put me in this architecture meeting, I never even sat down. I actually stood. I looked at the screen. There was probably maybe 15 people in there. There were a couple of executive vice presidents. I mean, there were important people in there, a bunch of architects. Um, I walked up to the front of the room. There was a whiteboard to the right. And I drew a little sketch out, um, automation stack, and I asked a couple of questions. Uh, number one, I asked them, you have a, you have a master data model in this, this layer of the stack. Okay. In L2, L3 over here, you have a master data model in the cloud over here, which is the, um, backend for your IOT layer in Azure. How are you going to reconcile? And I basically drew a circle between the two. And I said, how will you reconcile the reality in this master data model with the reality in this master data model without writing custom code in an SDK? That was the first question I asked. Now, that architect from that IT company who is an Azure partner did not expect me to A, even know that was going to be a problem, that that was a gap. And number two, that I would even have the balls to ask that question, knowing that he's not going to have an answer. So he looked at me like, his liter literally his eyes were, what the fuck? Okay. Um, he, he said, and he did the classic kick the can down. Well, we're going to have those conversations in the meeting tomorrow morning, Friday morning. Okay. So then I said, okay, pause. The next thing that I said was I drew on the board. I said, you have a, 
plant level IoT layer that's going to have a, a software platform that the plant is going to be able to, the site's going to be able to use to build applications. Okay. Obviously, they, they were recommending you use Power BI and Power Apps for most data and information consumption coming out of the cloud, right? That, that classic digital threat architecture. But I, they had a, a box. It's a new box. They didn't have this before, but they had a box in, the, in L3, which is at the site level. And that box was IoT platform. And it was for the site to build solutions in. And I was pointing out, well, the master data model in that and the master data model in your cloud infrastructure will not be the same. They're deterministic. So if I make a change in one, it doesn't automatically change in the other and vice versa, right? How will you reconcile those data models? Moreover, your cloud infrastructure is Azure. Azure is not agnostic. That is the master data models are not agnostic. The applications inside of Azure are dependent upon certain attributes and parameters, columns in their tables, like time, TSI, time series insights, which is a trending tool for time series data. It requires a very specific semantic header for each insert. So if I'm using the, an API call to insert a time series record um, that I want TSI to consume, you have to generate, you have to format the header in a very specific way in a way that is completely different than the way that the IoT platform on the plant floor or in at the site does it. They're different, okay? So now what I've got to do is create a connector for each time series event so that what I do is I change when I'm going from site to data lake, I'm adding this specific times TSI header. And when I'm consuming from data lake back to site, I remove that header. And I reconcile it with whatever ID, primary key, whatever I'm using for the time series data on the plant level. So we're having this conversation. I pointed out that architectural problem. This is something that's obviously going to jump up. Then the second question I asked was, I drew the square that was the site level. And I drew the container in which the platform was going to run. And I said, who owns that container? So the, it's the site level. It's the site level architecture. They're going to put an IoT platform in there. And I pointed to that box and I said, who owns that container? And they said, oh, well, corporate IT will own that. And I said, well, then in that case, that means corporate IT is responsible for enablement, which means that's not going to work. That isn't how digital transformation works. You have to enable, um, you have to unlock potential on the plant floor by enabling people to solve their own problems within their own infrastructure off of basic minimum technical requirements. And so if as they solve their problems, they create namespaces that consume, um, consume data and generate information, you have to have a mechanism to publish that into a common infrastructure. You're taking a completely different approach, one that we know doesn't work. So then they push back pretty hard, the, the, corporate, the corporate IT team or, and the, the IT consultant. They had a whole team of engineers there, by the way. So it was this Azure consultant with maybe four or five engineers sitting at the table. And I pointed at the screen and I said, that is a, a classic digital thread architecture. And, they, and all their engineers nodded their head yes. And I said, and that doesn't work. So now I made the declarative statement. After I asked all the Socratic questions, I made the declarative statement. And I said, and that doesn't work. And, the re and when I said that declarative statement, I was prepared to defend my position, except they didn't ask me to. So then I said, I gave them the, do you have any examples? I asked, I didn't ask, I asked the question I already knew the answer to. Do you have any examples of that architecture working A, at scale for any organization, okay, and B, being an effective foundation or framework for the digital infrastructure of any organization outside of cloud-based solutions. And it was fucking crickets. They didn't say a fucking word. Okay. So I followed up with, okay. I was the one who, I said, here's my recommendation. I said, I, I'm, I'm not, we have a difference in philosophy. I'm not going to put my name on this. I can't. So I, I can't have you say Walker Reynolds, was the architect here when we did this solution, okay? So I can't put my name on this. 
So my recommendation is this. There are certain things that we know about the way this organization operates because we've been here since 2018. Um, it, the, the local site, not the corporate company. We weren't engaged with the, the corporation. There are certain things we know about gaps in the process, the way they handle manufacturing operations, the way that they handle batches, the way they generate recipes and formulations and all that are abnormal. They're non-typical. They're non-conventional, which will make what you're doing over there basically impossible. Okay, so you, you won't be able to use that architecture to even solve their basic manufacturing execution issues. Okay, so what I recommend is you guys take the rest of this week, learn as much as you can. I'm going to go back to Dallas. I'll leave a member of my team here to take notes. If you guys have any questions, he can call me. I'll jump on a team's call with you. But my recommendation is we reconvene next week. Okay. You guys learn everything you can. Let's reconvene next week. Um, and let's put together a plan for us, for you to do your thing and us to do our thing. And let's see who wins. Okay. Uh, and then I left. <laughs> okay. Um, and I, and I, there was a, a, a vice president, an executive vice president from their corporation who came out into the hallway and he thanked me and he said, I agree with you. He said, I agree that what they put on that screen is going to work. Um, we absolutely want you guys to support this local location and we want you to help act as an accelerator for the corporate group and for this IT consulting firm. But we don't, we, I don't believe that the, where this IT consulting firm is going is, is, is the right direction. And you asked all the right questions. Okay. I said, great. I'm happy to support you. Hugs and kisses, pound it out. We leave. Uh, I leave with Josh and I leave and, and one of our other people stayed. We get a call. I get a message at the end of the next day. So maybe 20, 30 hours later, I get a call from my CXO saying, hey, can you jump on a call with these guys? They want to talk to you. And um, and there was a room full of people. And those that room full of people was, hey, you're right. We got to go. We got to go your direction. I, I assure you, if the vast majority of the people if, on, who are watching this stream, I assure you, if you had been in that room when I was challenging this architect, if you had been in that room when I was standing in front of the room and clearly everybody in the room was uncomfortable with what I was doing, except for my team, you would have never believed that they were going to call me the next day and say, we want to go with what you said. You would have thought there's no way we're ever working with that company ever again. They're going to kick us out. We'll never hear from them ever again. That's what you would have thought. That is the difference between managing and leading. Okay. And, and I, I want to say this, drive home this point here. Okay. When you are right and you are the expert, you die on that fucking hill because that is what you are being paid to do. You are being paid to die on that hill. All right. I, I was having a conversation with my team here earlier and I was saying, one of the things that I've learned, you know, being an entrepreneur, owning 49 companies, you know, being in front of being, being rubbing shoulders with the, the greatest industrial minds, you know, of our generation is that the average person, the average person, I think has a very, has a misconception of what, um, the average executive leader is like. Okay. So like if I say Warren Buffett, okay, most people would think, oh, really nice old guy from St. Louis who plays the long game and does a lot of investment and eats, uh, I think, a Big Mac every day, or maybe it's an Egg McMuffin or something. That's, and, and he loves to drink Coca-Cola. I think that's what most people would say, right? Rich guy, great investor. Warren Buffett is a fucking pit bull. He is an absolute pit. You know, Warren Buffett fires somebody every single day. Do you know that he he uses this strategy of asking one question to find out if you're a liar and then firing you? It, Elon Musk fired uh, a contractor in every every single week, 50, you know, for a year and a half during the, you know, tw 2012, 2013, when Giga Fremont was getting built 
and the Model S line was being stood up, Elon Musk fired a contractor in every single weekly board meeting. And when he was asked why, he said, because there's always somebody worth firing. The, the greatest leaders in the world behind the scenes are fucking pit bulls, absolute pit bulls. The reason that Elon Musk goes on a bunch of podcasts and asks, acts like this affable, aloof guy, acts that way, is because if he didn't, his reputation would solely be based on what he's like at work. Same thing with Warren Buffett. Same thing with, I mean, this is the reason that um, Zuckerberg is so disliked because it has nothing to do. He's no different than any other executive leader out there. And, and I'm saying leader, not manager. People who make things happen and influence decisions and make decisions, tough decisions. Zuckerberg, Buffett, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, all these people, Elon Musk, Dan Pena, right? They all make decisions the same way. Absolute pit bulls. The difference between Zuckerberg and everyone else is that he did a really crappy job with his public relations piece. When he goes and does interviews, he looks like an adult. You know what I mean? If you watch that 60 Minutes interview or whatever. The, the important thing here is there's a huge difference between being a manager and being a leader. A leader is an expert who gives you the bad news, no matter how it makes you feel. That's what a leader does. If you ask, you ask the rank and file, you ask the rank and file person, what is leadership? They'll say, it's the uh, art of getting people to do what, what you want them to do because they want to do it. No, that's not leadership. That's management. Okay. Leadership means that you, you set vision, you set goal. You set mission, you create the message, you create the movement, you build the team and the followers and the proselytizers, and, and you get it done. You're the accountability officer. It starts with you, and it works its way throughout your entire organization. And leaders make things happen. So why am I so critical about like Mary Barra and Jim Farley? Because neither of them are leaders. They're managers. That's what, you know, Jim Farley, the CEO at Ford and Mary Barr, the CEO at General Motors. They're not leaders and leaders can identify leaders. Okay. All right, Josh, any comments there? Egg McMuffin and a small coffee. Um, Michael. Oh, wait. Okay. Curious on your thoughts on DevOps or data ops, depending on what buzzword you want to use for the UNS. Ansible, Terraform, Docker, Docker Compose. How do you make your infrastructure easy to redeploy and maintain? That's not, there's no easy answer to that, but I would say the short answer, the short answer is from an architectural perspective. So from a 5,000 foot view, it's definitely Docker containerization. Um, from a code level, 100 foot, then it's, it's things like um, Git, Azure DevOps, et cetera. Uh, JC Du Perez. Uh, Hi, Walker. We don't manufacture in the sense of CNC, et cetera, but we mine ore and crush it. We float it and make it concentrate and then smelt it into us. Does that operation system count as an MES? Yes. So um, it, it is the in, um, remove the word manufacturing and um, put in um, operations. So it would be operation execution system. But you the whether you're doing um, whether your your industry is starts with a raw material or with a subassembly, it's still it's still from a from an architectural perspective, it's the same. Um, Michael Jersey, hello. Question from New: Is there a space while you're involved on the industry 4.0 transformation where you involve direct operators into this journey? Yep, and it starts on day one. Can you please share some recommendations where to start? All right. So this goes to the digital transformation maturity assessment concept, okay, that we teach in Mastermind or and really in, in Mastermind, but we talk about it in mentorship and you guys hear me talk about it in our YouTube content, okay? Uh, yeah, Tim Ryder, I'm going to get your question. I'm going to do the UNS and then I'm going to answer your question on the UNS piece. Um, the... Um, One of the meetings for a digital transformation maturity assessment, one of those meetings is operations, okay? And when you go into any of the, the pillar meetings, any of the, the meetings with uh, 
maintenance and engineering, operations, leadership, quality, IT. Those are their five pillars. Um, you're really trying to ascertain three things, okay? Number one, what are you good at? As a group, what are you good at? Number two, what are you bad at? And number three, what's missing? And to answer, answer the what's missing question, okay? To answer the what's missing question, the exercise that I go through is something like this, JC. I will ask everybody in the room, especially operators, what is one problem in your job you've been trying to solve for a, a day, a week, a month, a year, a, you know, 10 years that you haven't been able to solve yet? And it doesn't have to be technology related. Any problem, okay? Tell me that what problem in your job can you not, you haven't been able to solve yet? And then you use that. What you do is you take that problem and you use it to improve the organization. You solve that problem. And here's the best example or a example. I did this with an oil and gas company. Um, this is maybe, this is like 2015, 2016. The operators are in the room. In, in oil and gas, they call them lease operators. So real quick for the, those who don't do oil and gas, I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. Uh, in oil and gas production, okay, so with the wells, okay, you have uh, assets that are out basically out in the middle of nowhere. I might be responsible for, as a lease operator, I'm responsible for, say, 40 production wells, you know, two saltwater disposal locations, and two tank batteries. So the wells feet send all their oil, their, their fluid to tank batteries. The tank batteries, after post-processing, you know, do they send the, the trash to a saltwater disposal, basically the garbage fluid. Okay. They might be responsible for 40 assets that cover something like, say, 300 square miles, and they're in the middle of nowhere. All right. Um, and they have a route. They basically have a route where they hit their assets once every three days. So, day one, they'll do a third of those assets. They go on a certain path. Day two, they'll go on a different path. Day three, they'll go on a different path and they'll hit all the assets. But each day starts with them going to locations that had like an emergency, say an alarm popped up or whatever. Um, I got to go there first. Maybe it's shut in. Maybe the well's not producing, whatever. We had an operator in the room. When I asked this question, the, the operator said, lease operator said, you know, we have all this fancy technology. You know, we, we can check the wells, you know, once an hour to see if there's any problems over a cellular connection. If there's an alarm that goes off, I'll get a text message from this wind 911 thing. He goes, the other week, I this has been a problem the 20 years I've been doing this. The other week, I got a text message at two o'clock in the morning. And that text message said I had a high tank level in a tank battery in a location that was about 70 miles from where I was. And because the EPA will find us, we have to go pump that tank down. So I got to call a pumper at two o'clock in the morning and the pumper's got to drive out there and the pumper has to pump down that tank so it doesn't overflow. And we have to pay a premium because he did it at two in the morning. We got to pay overtime. We got to pay, you know, we got to pay a premium on the truck, the whole deal. He goes, the problem is the pumper got out there and yeah, we technically at a high level, the switch tripped. He goes, but the fluid pumping into the tank was pumping in so slow that I, I could have waited two days to go pump that down. He goes, I don't need to know whether I got a high level. He goes, I need to know how much time I have left in the tank. He goes, for 20 years, we've just been sending alarms on high level. He goes, I don't, high, all high levels are not the same. He goes, I need to know how much time in tank I have. He goes, can you solve that problem? I said, you bet your ass I can, and I'll do it right now. And in 10 minutes, writing a simple function, because I knew, I knew the volume of the tank, I, could, I knew the inflow going into the tank. I knew the outflow going into, out of the tank. I also knew the position of the sensor. So at how many inches was the high level in the tank? I wrote a very simple function that converted all of those variables and constants into time and tank. And then we just put the alarm there. 10 minutes. Involving the operator on day one. Now, what do you get from that? Right? What do you get from that? Well, you get... You get operator buy-in. You immediately solve you solve an immediate problem that they have, and you convince operators that this isn't the you know flavor of the month. So you, you got them excited, and you've created a 
a situation where you can actually solve business problems. The smartest people in an organization are your operators. If you're watching this podcast, okay, if you're a, if you're watching this podcast or listening to this podcast, and you do not believe that the smartest people in the organization are the people who do the actual work on the plant floor or out in the trucks or turn in the wrenches, you do not belong here. <laughs> okay, I, I've been doing this a long time. And I am a very smart guy and I'm very accomplished. I'm highly educated and I am not the smartest person in an organization when it comes to what their problems are. Digital transformation is about enabling operators and mechanics and electricians and supervisors, the people who do the actual work to identify problems and solve those problems. Back when I was an electrician, way at the very beginning of my career, I used to, our operators used to be really paranoid about telling, like, say they screwed up, they made a mistake and they, you know, they ran a piece of equipment into a wall or whatever, and they, they broke something. They were in, because of like, um, you know, the chance they could get written up or whatever, they would, um, they would uh, have an incentive to not tell me the truth. Or if, if it took me longer to fix something, they got a longer break. They had an incentive to not tell me everything they knew about the problem. So what I would do is I would, when I started with a new crew, every time I started with a new crew, I would say, listen, I'm here to make your job easier. All I'm asking in return is don't make mine harder. So if you fuck up, tell me the truth. I will always cover for you. I will never, ever, ever rat you out as long as you tell me the truth. So I will never, if you made a mistake and you smashed something or whatever, and it caused $20,000 worth of damage or $100,000 worth of damage, I'll cover for you. Just tell me what happened so I can fix it. And number two, if you want that extra long break or whatever, let's say you want a 25-minute break and um, you know, you tell me how long of a break you want and then tell me what it is you know. And I'll, I'll write on my report, it took 25 minutes, right? Don't make it harder. Don't, you know, be... What I learned was that operators knew everything. <laughs> they fucking knew everything. They knew how to solve. They knew every problem in the business. The only difference is, is that leadership did a really bad job of unlocking that because they didn't create an environment where it was in their best interest anymore to unlock it. Okay. All right. Um, when it, uh, let's go to John Maldonado. Oh, let's do uh, Tim Ryder. At what layer do you aggregate asset-specific data for the purposes of OEE? Where is the preferred layer for mapping the asset data to a standard data model? Okay. The preferred layer for mapping asset data to the standard data model is in, is in the production line layer, okay, uh, for ISA 95 Part 2. So if you look at a unified namespace, enterprise site, area line, cell, the line or the cell is the asset. Sometimes the line is the work center. Sometimes the area is the work center. Sometimes the cell is the asset. Sometimes the line is the cell. Wherever it lays out, you're going to put the definition of that asset at that level, right? So we generally have a, uh, a functional or a definitional namespace in the UNS called line. And under the line is all of the asset definitions, the asset ID, the manufacturer in service date, all that kind of stuff. Okay. And then is Josh, throw it back up again. I need, I need to answer that first. Um, and at what layer do you aggregate asset specific data for the purposes of OEE? It, it's going to be where the, where the ERP system says the asset level is, uh, is ISA 95 still modeling the modeling standard to follow these days or is the landscape changing? There is no alternative as it stands right now. And here in, to answer Richard Blanchett's question, ERP systems are based on ISA 95 part two. So if you look at the way SAP is built, the way Epicor is built, the way Zoho is built, the way Odoo is built, the way basically any manufacturing ERP master data model, they start with ISA 95 part two. Now, there are some ERPs out there that start with no entities. So no master definition. So there isn't an, an enterprise or a site, you create those attributes, okay? That's rare. The, the standards are ISA 95 part two, okay? So 
if you look at most ERP systems are structured that way, most CMMS systems are structured that way too. When you define an asset in a CMMS, which is a maintenance management software, that asset is designed to be an asset connected to an ISA 95 parameter. Okay. Um, so it, for us to answer your question about asset, it is generally at the line level. Okay. It's generally at the line level within the line um, definitional namespace. Or it could be at the cell. Okay. It just depends on, on we, what we'll do is we'll look at the ERP. We'll look at the CMMS. And one of the very first questions we'll ask is how are you reconciling the data models between the two? We're not great. Let's do it through the, the unified namespace. Do you have a need to get the asset ID from the ERP into your CMMS and vice versa? Do you have a need to get all of the, uh, uh, PM schedules, PM execution, um, unplanned downtime work orders for each asset into the ERP. Great. Let's do that through the, the UNS. The CMMS ID, ERP, asset ID are tied together underneath the asset definition within the unified namespace, generally at the line level. All right. Let me go here. All right. I want to go over the UNS whiteboard questions because we're going to be shooting a bunch of follow-up whiteboard um, videos um, to answer some of these questions. So I, I want to go through the ones that we're going to be replying to. So Reese said, what about pulling historical data in the unified namespace? Do I pull it from the source or does the unified namespace keep history? And if so, where? How does buffering work when, say, my MES layer was down and need to get downtime states of the past three, say, hours for OEE? Looking forward to listening to you at Mesa Africa Conference from South Africa next month. All right. Historical data. The unified namespace itself is only current state. What you have is a historian. You have a historian that is that is a consumer of the events that are in the unified namespace. Now, we generally use Canary because Canary Labs plugs in natively. So, I, I mean, I can literally set up a connector between a unified a broker, MQTT broker, and Canary Labs, and any any uh, data type that is a data type that can be historized in Canary, Canary will consume the, the namespace structure as an asset structure in Canary and then historize any of the topics that are data types that they can historize. Okay, so uh, double integers, floats, et cetera, right? Um, moreover, we can use the structure of the unified namespace to make the call to the historian go give me the history from this topic namespace, enterprise forward slash light, blah, 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 right? But we also consume historical data into the namespace as arrays. So time series data, we can create a topic that could be something like tank level last hour. Okay, it would be the name of the topic. And that is actually historical data. It's time series over the last hour. One topic where the payload is an array or in a results set from a database query that is the time series data so that I can just consume that topic and parse it as time series, okay? Um, our David campaign, and I'm gonna shoot a video on this, but David said, great video. However, the dismissal of OPC UA is not accurate or helpful. It is 100% accurate. Uh, David campaign, if you wanna come on the podcast, I'm happy to have you on here. I'd love to hear you tell me what it is was inaccurate about my statements about OPC UA. In fact, uh, Matt Paris has a paper that I'm reviewing right now that lays out in even greater detail the the gaps. Okay, I assure you, it is 1,000% accurate or helpful as it ignores OPCUA PubSub and the strong support that it has in industry. David Campaign, OPCUA PubSub does not have strong support in the industry. In fact, there are very few implementations of PubSub, OPC UA PubSub Part 14. Moreover, I've made this argument over and over and over again. Why would you use an OPC UA, o, OPC UA PubSub Part 14 recommends that you use MQTT as your transport, but an OPC UA information model and an OPC definition, OPC UA information model for the payload and an OPC definition for the uh, server namespaces. Why would you do that? Why would you, why would you, if I'm going to use PubSub, why would I throw in a bunch of 
attributes, parameters, and overhead that are unnecessary for my infrastructure. One of the biggest challenges with OPC UA is that OPC Foundation is a political organization. Okay, the OPC Foundation may have started out with a mission to promote interoperability between um, industrial solutions. That is definitely not what they do. O what OPC UA does is, you know, Microsoft and Rockwell and all these organizations that join, they're not interested in true interoperability. They start with, they start with what's best for them. And they never come off that. And, and, and how a standard gets written is a function of um, which person had the most political clout on that committee. And, and by the way, don't, you don't have to trust me here. You can talk to, well, I, I don't want to mention names, but you could talk to, because I don't get permission, but there are many people. Okay. Even John Rinaldi, John Rinaldi is a member of the OPC foundation. Go ahead and talk to John Rinaldi, give him a call. Okay. John's going to tell you what the problems are. All right. Um, Benson Hoagland at Op Opto 22 or Arlen Nipper at Sirislink. All of them have been engaged with the organization and all of them come to the same conclusion. Okay. But my dismissal of OPC UA is absolutely accurate and it doesn't ignore OPC UA pub sub. You know what the general consensus is? The general consensus among industry 4.0 professionals is throw part 14 out and start over. And if there's anyone who disagrees with me on that, come on and tell me why we should keep part 14 as is. Okay. And, 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 and I, you know, there's a, a another member of our community, this guy, Matt Paris, right. Who is a outstanding engineer who has spent probably the last year and a half, almost two years. I, I dare say that there is uh, no more well-informed expert on the OPC UA standard than Matt Paris outside of um, very, very select members of the organization. Okay. I assure you, okay. I assure you, David campaign that uh, OPC UA pub sub does not have strong support. There are lots of words in the standard and very, very few of them are used. Let's just put it that way. And that, and that's a, that's a metaphor. It's a double entendre actually. Um, your videos are amazing. Oh yeah. Date Douglas. Hey, Seuss Seville asked the same question about history. Uh, thanks for sharing. OPC. Okay. G Vivek says, uh, OPC way provides pub sub for data communication. Dead band filters can be easily applied here, but it sounds like MQTT has got a lot more to offer than just data aggregation. Would love to know more about it. We will shoot a video on that piece. Um, and then, uh, Matthias Paulson, I'll answer his, um, great videos. So you are using MQTT to bring all the information to UNS. The answer is not necessarily, but that's the goal. Okay. We, we, we may, we may aggregate namespaces across many protocols and standards, but once we're ready to transmit that namespace that we've created somewhere else in the organization, we're always using MQTT. Um, and you are then structuring your data following ISA 95 part two. Let's say you were using MQTT distributor as your broker. Okay. It could be any broker I know. Then when you are publishing, for example, data from the ERP system, would you need to subscribe to that data, merge it into the data structure following ISA 95 part two, and then publish that whole structure again, right? Yes, it depends on the use case, but that happens more, more times than not. Since with MQTT Sparkplug B, you can only have group ID, edge node ID, and device ID, you can't directly translate that to ISA 95 part two. You can... Um, assuming that your asset structure uh, is at meets at the meets at the line level, okay, the asset is at the line, which is why you would need to do that intermediate step in order to structure all data within UNS. Is this correct? Or am I missing it? Something. So, Matthias, the answer is it can be correct. It's not always correct. This is one of the. We will shoot a video here, and I will show you the two two examples. One where natively you can publish base into an ISA 95 part two namespace and where you would have to abstract, which is what you described at the beginning. Um, 
And then Bill Antonopoulos, I just wanted to point something out. We're going to shoot a whole video on Bill Antonopoulos's uh, comment because he actually puts in, he, he actually writes basically a specification and asks me to develop the solution for that specification, which is what I will do in a whiteboard video. Um, is Siemens Cymatic uh, WinCC uni uh, OA a UNS? My mom was asking about it yesterday. I sent her a recent UNS video. The answer is yes, Zach. It, it uh, The answer is yes with some caveats, but the answer is yes. A Richard Blanchett, uh, thanks. When I was looking into this months ago, I saw a couple of other standards growing. Names escaped me, but they felt untested, and ISI was the big dog. Just checking things haven't changed. Yeah, Richard, I, I, I find it hard to believe. I mean, ISA 95 Part 1 is, is really moot. Like, if you look, Part 1 is really the standard upon which the Purdue security model is built. You know, anybody who takes a look at where um, industrial infrastructure is going realizes that Purdue is going to be is going to be obsolete. Um, I mean, even the architects that I went at went at it with last week <laughs> agree with that. That once we're fully edge driven, there's no need to go with multiple layers of security to protect infrastructure on the plant floor, especially if the device out on the plant floor is the one that's instantiating the connection outward. Right. That's a fundamental difference between industry 3.0 and 4.0. So. ISA 95 part one was all about how to, you know, how to structure the business vertically, the infrastructure vertically. ISA 95 part two is how to structure it horizontally. ISA 95 part two, I just don't see that going anywhere because it's effective. Does it need to be expanded? It absolutely does need to be expanded. Like, for example, people will ask if ISA 95 part two says you structure your business enterprise site area line cell. Where's, where does the business unit go? Well, the answer is the business unit is an attribute of site. Every site is a, is a member of a business unit. So underneath site is a property called business unit or attribute called business unit with a, a definition. Uh, Josh, anything else I need to absolutely... Uh, Mark Jackson, are you aware of Industry 4.0 um, solution providers in the UK that you would see as a competitor? as a competitor to what we have partners in the UK. We, have, you know, like gallery solutions. Um, but I, we don't really consider, uh, I'm going to answer John Maldonado's question here. Uh, we don't, we don't look at other, uh, we don't really look at things as competition. We look at it as, um, colleagues, community members, right? Peers, John Maldonado, um, when it comes to modeling data to be published in the UNS, how would you decide what to publish? Uh, rule number three in digital transformation is um, make no assumptions about how data will be consumed. All data matters. So he says, if you have a PLC with 100 tags, do you just publish everything? And how would you uh, organize those hierarchically? Uh, the tags themselves. So ideally, what you're doing is you're, you're doing all your modeling on the edge in the PLC. Like if we're using a Groove Epic, like an Opto 22 Groove Epic, uh, or we're using a Siemens S7 1200 or something, because there's a MQTT block in there that allows us to structure um, topic namespaces, we can do all the modeling on the edge. Ideally, you're going to do all your modeling. You know, you would publish a model of your asset from the asset itself. And that is part of the minimum technical requirements. Machine builders, they basically do all their asset modeling on the machine and then they literally publish it to an infrastructure using isa 95 part two they publish their asset to the line level with the full namespace in it and so that's part of the functional acceptance test process right so you don't have to do any integration um the answer is send all 100 tags ideally you're modeling them so ideally you are creating models of um instrumentation and processes on the asset ideally, but if you can't, then you're going to do that in your IoT platform, but you are going to send everything. If you send it raw, you're going to send it into a namespace called Edge, which the device will be the PLC. So it'll be in an Edge namespace with the PLC device and then all the raw tags that are being published. Uh, Josh, anything else I got to do? Or is that good? 
uh, unified under the hood is is OA. By the way, uh, Zach, good question though. All right, thank you everybody for watching. We will have a couple of whiteboard videos coming out uh, centered around the unified namespace. We will do this session um, again. We'll answer more questions on the unified namespace. I'm trying to figure out how I could do like I could uh, do a use case um, through a podcast. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to how to do that. Um, like, could I explain a use case, you know, where I'm really just talking? So, uh, no problem, John Maldonado. If you got any questions, man, you can just reach out. Uh, you can connect with Cheryl or, um, there's a connect thing. If you, if you want me to take a look at something, I'm happy to do that for you, dude. Um, all right, everybody, um, like subscribe, hit the bell, comment down below, share the video. Uh, appreciate you guys watching and we will see you next time.